I, that's the one thing I've noticed about like this podcast. I've not met an asshole yet. I don't know. That. I'm sure it's going to happen. It's going to happen, isn't it? That's Sarah Jane laughing. Manchester Literature Festival. Um, yeah. There are assholes out there, I'm afraid. There's loads of them. I've just been very lucky, I think. Yeah. And they, they don't leave London. They don't even leave North London. Yeah. <laughs> things. I'm recording today from my home office again in Ermston. It's the day before Halloween and actually I'm just looking outside at the moment and the street looks pretty amazing. It's uh, virtually every square inch is covered in yellow and red leaves. All the trees are different colors. It's almost like a fireworks display or a Norman Rockwell painting and it kind of, this time of year is the only time of year that I feel like I'm at home almost because of when you get a good autumn, like we're getting at the moment, like, I mean, it's, don't get me wrong. The weather is still shit. It's cloudy every day and it's been pissing down, but the trees are in full display. And, um, yeah, in fact, Pam is, I was going to say raking her leaves at the moment, but she's sweeping them. She's not got her crutches, so I'm assuming she has had her hip operation. I hope so, anyway. But you can never tell with uh, pre-war people, because even if she hasn't had her operation, she would just power through that pain anyhow. That's not very nice. Is that a nice thing to say? I'm not sure. If I had an honorable bone in my body, I would go out there and offer to rake her leaves. (laughs) That doesn't sound good. That was not a euphemism. She's literally raking her leaves, sweeping them. And, you know, if I was a nice guy, I'd probably go out there and offer to. But there, it's there's so many, and it would take ages. You know, the funny thing is, I've just noticed this. The leaves that are in front of my driveway are really old. Everyone else's leaves, they've just fallen in the last couple of days. Ours have been there for a month. We're kind of the uh, bastards on this street, I think. We leave our bins on the driveway, which I'm sure drives Pam crazy, um, and the other geriatrics on this street. Uh, they really don't like that. And I know I've mentioned that before, so I won't go on about it. But the grass underneath the leaves needs mowing as well. But I don't. the thing is, ever since Brexit, I just don't give a shit what old people think anymore. I used to feel quite guilty, but... I'm not going to talk about Brexit. I'm not going to talk about any more politics. I know I've been going on about it way too much on this podcast. And the listenership on the last one, I think, took a bit of a nosedive. And to the point where I can't even listen to them. I can't listen to myself talk about it. So happy thoughts, happy thoughts. It's a, actually, despite the fact that it's cloudy as shit, it looks lovely on my street. Tomorrow night is Halloween. The trick-or-treaters will be coming out. And in addition to, you know, being the worst house for mowing and raking, we're also the crappiest Halloween house, too. I'm definitely of the lights-off, sorry-kids-out-of-candy note on the door at 6 p.m. type of guy. And I know that makes me a re- like the king, really, of Halloween hypocrites because I loved Halloween as a kid. It was my favorite day. I liked it more than Christmas. I liked it so much that I actually was a trick-or-treater for way too long. I won't tell you how old I was when I finished trick-or-treating, but get a number in your mind and think about how old is too old to go trick-or-treating and then add probably five years to that. 
by the time I'd stopped, I was, it was so embarrassing that even I couldn't stand myself. But that, that's the thing though. I may have been a, a certain, a, 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 almost a teenager, uh, but you know, I looked nine. When you're four foot eight and 80 pounds, when you're in your teens, you can, you can carry on trick-or-treating if you want. Why? What am I talking about? I'm rambling. This is the problem. See, a lot of times I actually write a bit of a script to go off of so I can uh, keep my mind in order and get some funny jokes in. And then other times I just talk about things off the top of my head. I just don't really like kids and I don't like them coming to my door. Is that so wrong? You know, when you live on a conservative white neighborhood on a conservative white street... Um, not having kids is like um, the weirdest thing you can do, really. They probably think I'm some sort of pedo, which makes no sense, considering I'm probably the exact opposite of that. That doesn't sound good, actually. What would the exact opposite of a pedo be? I don't hate kids. Don't I'm not leaving that in. I just don't like people knocking my door, is what I'm saying. I don't really like talking to people at, at all if I don't have to, let alone human strangers who come to the door, child or otherwise. Uh, my wife's better at it than me because she's quite social. She's British and you people are very good at social situations despite the fact that you think you're not. My When Jovis or dodgy builders come to the door, my wife actually speaks to them and lets them do their spiel whereas I'm just like not, inter not interested in slam the door, you know, telemark is the phone just goes down. I don't care. I feel the, kind of the same way with trick-or-treaters. If there was some way I could just get a list of kids and via eBay or Amazon just send them candy in the mail, everyone would be happier. The scared parents with all the pedo stuff. They don't even get a good Halloween anymore because they got the kid, the parents in tow walking around watching them every second. What fun is that? Why bother? <laughs> Happy Halloween, everyone. You can't actually slam doors on children though apparently so we have to buy candy just in case some do come to the door and to be honest we don't get many because we're the weirdos on the street but my wife who everyone thinks is the one who likes kids she buys the shittest candy for them this year she's actually she's outdone herself she's bought the kids the those individually wrapped squares of white chewy maum candies those little shitty individually wrapped ones are terrible but she not only that but she's bought them mini bounties as well and as much as I don't like the kids coming to the door I am a North American and I have a reputation to maintain when it comes to Halloween so I actually had to go out and buy full-size Kit Kat chunkies and when we give those out I know that that's going to be more kids next year because they'll be like oh that's the good house I guess and I, I tell you what giving them out the good candy that's not going to really make people on the street think that less of me being a pedo, they're going to think, oh, right, he's, he's now he's tracking the children. I'm overthinking it. Uh, all I'm saying is if you gave out bounties in my hometown when I was trick-or-treating, your house would get burned down. And today, I talked to Nikesh Shukla, novelist and editor of uh, the really amazing collection of essays, The Good Immigrant. It's a truncated chat, actually, due to some... I'm going to say it, uh, some bad planning. For some reason, food doesn't seem to have been scheduled into his day. So I was, originally I was supposed to talk to him before the, his show uh, as part of the Manchester Literature Festival. The whole reason he came to Manchester, really. But for some reason or other, 
that had to be changed. I don't know if the train was late or if they were late or whatever. They scheduled me to talk to him after the show. And I kind of had my worries about it because I know how these shows go and I know how popular the book is. So I thought, you know, maybe these people are going to demand his time. And um, yeah, turns out they were very demanding. Uh, his fans are, well, I don't say demanding. It's a good, it's a really good book and it deserves all the success it, it's getting. But you would think that perhaps he they would have get, gotten him a meal before the show and that didn't happen. So he'd only talked to me for a very short period of time because the restaurants were closing and he needed to get some food, obviously. In fact, there's one bit in the interview where we're actually interrupted so he can choose something off the menu. And I actually had to leave that bit in. I had to leave all of it in because there, I only spoke to him for such a short period of time. It didn't allow me to do much editing. Well, any editing. So you get the whole interview, which you might be thinking, wow, great. I get to hear all the back, all the, um, what is it called? See, this is what happens when I don't have a script. All of the behind the scenes chat. And uh, you might think, oh, that's great. But it's not, because usually the stuff that I take out needs taking out. It's usually, you know, me asking a really stupid question, or I take out the bits where I, I come off as a real sycophant. So those are those had to stay in. There's a couple pretty crappy questions that had to stay in. There weren't as many, there weren't any questions as bad as the one I edited from Jen Ashworth's interview. The question where I asked her how she manages to hold down a job and be a an amazing writer whilst having kids. <laughs> that was, yeah, that, I almost should have left it in because I don't even think she answered it. She just kind of scowled at me and I realized immediately that it was probably the stupidest question I've ever asked. There's nothing as bad as that in this interview, uh, but there are a couple, it could have been trimmed, put it that way. And if I'd been able to talk to him for him, to him longer, then I could have done more trimming. However, having said that, I should just be happy, really, that I got him at all, because this book, like I mentioned, is going sick. Is that what the kids say? It's really popular. Before, I think the week before he spoke to me, he was on BBC Breakfast, and his book was named the Radio 4 Book of the Week. So the idea that he made some time for a shitty little lit podcast is a testament to what kind of guy he is. There's a J.K. Rowling quote on the front of his book, for God's sake. Anyway, what am I yammering on about? Here's Nikesh. Listen. Thanks for doing this. No worries, no worries. Are you, uh, you're tight for time, I understand. Okay. I'm gonna stay over here very quietly around that corner. Okay. Wait, let's have we got a chaperone? <laughs> yes. Okay. Just in case I have bad mouth. Anyway. You won't do it. No, I might. I might. It might, might be fun. Right. How are you, first of all? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. I, did, I said that in a really abnormal voice. I'm good, thank you. How yeah. Are you? I'm good. very tired. But are I'm, you? Have you? Has this been quite a uh, long tour? Well, um, so I'm, I'm balancing a day job and... Uh, you still have a day job? I do have a day job. I, I do youth work. I mentor young people. Mm -hmm. um, and this, and also having a young child who is punishing me for being away a lot, which right. 
um, is quite interesting, but also quite heartbreaking at the same time. So yeah, um, yeah, and she managed like this this week. I where are we? We were in Durham over the weekend. We're in Manchester tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in Birmingham on Friday and Cheltenham on Sunday. And this was the crazy week. Uh, problematic, ableist term. Sorry about that. This is the yeah. really really difficult week. Um, and this was the week when she got ill, and my my wife and I joked about it, but then yeah. it ended up actually happening, which was oh god, inevitable, but yeah, you know, fine. <laughs> but still awful. Yeah, so I was up last night with her till quite late. Oh um, god, but yeah, we're here. We did a good yeah. show. It yeah, really- it was an amazing show. Oh, I thank thought. you, thank uh, you. Inua's especially was incredible. He didn't that whole tour of Africa he did. That wasn't done specifically for this book, was it? No, um, so what well, it was announced today actually, it was it was done as part of a new play that he has done for the, ah, Nas- right, okay. the National Theatre called Barbershop Chronicles, yep. which will be at the National Theatre next June, or then in theory tour afterwards. And <laughs> so he'd done all this research, he was in the middle of writing the play, um, and when I came to him with an idea, he said, this is the thing that I'm most ob- obsessed with, so... Mm-hmm. Um, so his his story is sort of it riffs on um, the the sort of the idea that Africa is a country mm-hmm. and play yeah. plays with um, plays with our our preconceived ideas yeah. of you know it's often, a small country yeah 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 and it's often in like American popular culture in like really shit shows mm-hmm. you, you can tell <laughs> it's a shit show because. Um, they will have a scene in like a really specific small town in Missouri, and then they'll go to Africa. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, and his his piece is about masculinity and different inflections of masculinity yeah. throughout the continent. It's it's really amazing. It really blew my mind when when he turned it in. Yeah, what um, what made you? And this is probably quite an obvious question, but what drove you to put this together? I was really sick of sitting on diversity panels and really sick of, um, you know, talking about the lack of opportunity to be published traditionally for writers of colour in the UK and not seeing any changes. Mm -hmm. And I was, I, I, I talk about this in the editor's note of the book. There was just a moment where I got really sick of having to justify my place at the table the Mm -hmm. whole time. Um, I read a comment on a Guardian article which collated a bunch of writing tips from me and loads of other writers uh, and we were all we were all people of colour and the journalist was a person of colour and the Ah you didn't say that downstairs, I didn't realise. Yeah, yeah. Um so she's Asian and like the majority of us were Asian or black mm-hmm. and um you know, it's it's not mentioned that that we we were Asian or black because mm-hmm. that is the that is what diver- we want diversity to be. That we don't have to constantly hang, like lay our stall, it, but next to our ethnicities. Yeah. And um, a commentator, like quite a prominent author, picked up on the fact that we were all, like the majority of us were Asian, and maybe we were just all friends of the journalist, which mm-hmm. kind of felt like a massive slap in the face. Like, yeah. oh, you don't have, you don't have, you haven't earned the merit to be here on mm-hmm. this space of the Guardian. Yeah. With your with your writing tips, therefore you've you've got here through nepotism. Yeah. Because all Asians know each other. Yeah. 
And you know what the sad truth of it is? If you're an agent in publishing, you do all know each other. Mm, because there's you, not many. Uh, there's not many of you. And also, you're so fucking sick. Sorry, can I swear? Of course you can. Um, you're so really motherfuckingly sick. <laughs> you're so yeah. fucking sick of all the yeah. microaggressions that mm-hmm. you all end up just like hiding in the corner with each other, just swapping those stories. And yeah. you all know each other because you're like, you know. And, you know, there was a time when there was like, there's a guy. There's a guy called Bobby Naya who runs um, a, a great independent press called Limehouse, mm-hmm. and uh, another guy called Bavit Mehta who um, used to uh, work for the British Council and now work um, now and used to program the South Asian Literature Festival. And now um, works for the Commonwealth Writers Foundation. We would be mistaken for each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And often when we were all three of us were in the same room, like we were just interchangeable. Yeah. And you just think, why isn't this happening with all of the Hannahs and Rebecca's yeah. and Brian's and Paul's that work yeah. in publishing? Why is it us three? Like, I know Bobby and I are quite chunky and <laughs> Barvit is very slender, but mm-hmm. we all look very different. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Totally. Um, How did you get these people together? And uh, how, why did you choose them? It's an interesting question because um, I've been asked this a lot because mm. I think a bunch of people read the book and expect it to be like a, a coherent, consistent mm-hmm. manifesto. Or I think it's a roller coaster. Go on, sorry, I didn't mean to. I think it's a charcuterie. I, I'm like, <laughs> 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 yeah. improvise your own metaphor for your yeah. book. Um, mm-hmm. It. So it, it's not a manifesto mm-hmm. by people of colour. It's not trying to cover every single community that possibly is. And, you know, for a book that has become laden with the weight of the immigration narrative post-referendum, mm-hmm. it's certainly not a post-referendum book. So no. it's not, you know, it's not about the the rise in hate crime. It's, it, you know, a lot of it's about nostalgia and kind of coming to terms with... Um, who we are and how we got to where we, we were at. Mm-hmm. Um, so how I chose the writers, um, a lot of them I just follow online and I read their articles religiously and mm-hmm. I read their poetry religiously and I, some of them are people I know um, who I knew had interesting stories. So Riz Ahmed, mm-hmm. a really old friend of mine, Himesh Patel, I've worked with him on other things and both of them I knew they would have interesting stories yep. to tell. Um People like Rennie Edo Lodge, I've just admired from afar because she is incredible. Just one of the best journalists I've ever read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people like Shemen Suleiman, who, who, you know, I'll, I'll home, hold my hand up. Shemen and Inua and Musa are, both, are all extremely close friends of mm-hmm. mine. But they're also people who I. And you know, I would throw Selena Godin into that yeah. mix. They're all people who, because they're quite established, people yeah. think that they they've given all they need to give, yeah. or they've kind of excelled in their art form. But actually, definitely, I was going to say, like, it, it makes perfect sense with Selena Godin on it. Yeah, because I, she's I've, a known writer. Yeah, and the thing I feel about Selena is like she has done so much for writers in this country like there are so many writers I mean Kate Tempest is a really great mm-hmm. example of like people who've like she has programmed so many times and given a platform to really key stages of our careers I would not be sitting here talking to you about this book if not for Selena yeah. and um, and I just 
and much as I want to pay forward the mentoring and opportunities that she gave me, I also felt that Selena doesn't ever get to be in these spaces for, for whatever reason, because mm-hmm. she is quite established. And, and I just know that she is she can write essays and she yeah. can write memoirs. I mean, like, it's obvious. It, yeah. Whether it's read any of her work. Springfield Road is just an mm-hmm. incredible memoir. Um, really incredible. And... Um, so there was there wasn't really a method to it. I asked a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people said yes. A bunch of people said no. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people ignored my initial email. Yeah. Um, and regretting it now. A couple of them got in touch afterwards <laughs> and said, uh, actually, you know, when when we got some heat and some hype, like yeah. they got back in touch and said they wanted to be involved, and you know. Um, and that, well, interestingly, like I'd only commissioned one essay from someone from an East Asian or Southeast Asian community, mm-hmm. and um, I thought, well, that that feels like tokenism to me. Mm-hmm. So I commissioned a couple more, yeah. um, just because I'd come across these interesting writers in sort of asking about, and that, you know, that was the thing when people had kind of pulled me up on it. Yeah, I. I thought about it thought about like looked at my own like unconscious bias and thought yeah mm-hmm. I have actually only commissioned one person and yeah. I haven't actually announced that name yet so it does look like I've completely yeah, yeah, yeah. ignored that community so I commissioned a couple more because I wanted to I wanted to not um, just have one lone voice and you know mm-hmm. um, so it, it's difficult there is there wasn't like a coherent um, method to any of it because mm-hmm. I think the coherence would have ended up making it more manifestly whereas actually the strength of it is that some of the stories are inconsistent and disagree with each other and have different remembrances of the same event and um, there are some that don't even have anything to do with being an immigrant Nish Kumar's for instance no and it you know and what's interesting is like the through line that goes through all of them is is about representation and how important representation is because and i don't th- i don't think that that's a frivolous point to make be mm. it when you are someone from uh, like when you are generations in an immigrant community because so much of your aspiration is it comes from um what you see reflected yeah. back, back at you. Um, there's this yeah, brilliant yeah. quote from White Teeth, uh, from Zadie Smith's Smith, White, yeah. White Teeth, where, um, so Irie is one of the main characters in the book, and it says, um, there was England, a gigantic mirror, and there was Irie without reflection. And I think about that quote quite a lot, and Varidso, one of the um, the uh, writers, who has got a really interesting story. Very it's my favourite one. I'll get a girl to, she's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she she had reminded me of this quote, and it, I'd thought a, I've, it's haunted me because I think that representation and aspiration are very very linked, and often that that idea of a mirror is really really important because if we are to if we are to build a brilliant society mm-hmm. where people feel equal access and opportunity, and they don't yeah. moan about diversity yeah. and all those kinds of things, then representation matters and representation matters for people from all walks of life you you need to see people representative as doctors or pharmacists or people of industry and Mm -hmm. working in digital and actors and all the rest of it Mm -hmm. um i'm I'm often convinced that the reason that like my parents or like parents from certain immigrant communities were always like 
oh, you shouldn't go into the arts or you shouldn't go into film and TV. It's not a proper career. You should get a proper career. Mm-hmm. Is because like in the 60s and 70s when they came over, they would look at those industries and not see themselves represented yeah. and, and just think, well, how is this person ever going to rise to the top? Yeah, it, that, that's, it's quite a common uh, theme that I think for most families, though. I don't think many, you know... Uh, white families would want their kids to go into acting or no uh, the arts really because there's no money in it well I, well what's interesting is like the people who like who i imagine i'm about to make a massive mm-hmm. sweeping statement please, please do please <laughs> and please don't pull me up on the okay. internet i am caveating this as yeah. purposefully generalized statement to make a point but yeah. um it feels like people who are from quite comfortable middle class backgrounds will say oh you can be whatever you want to be because they can see themselves represented whereas people from you know maybe from working class families or people from immigrant families don't see themselves represented and so think how is this person ever going to make a sustainable amount of money will they just hit the glass ceiling that I did or etc but going back to Varito she um, because I think where she is sort of if, and when we were talking about my day job earlier mm-hmm. I I run a youth magazine called Rife mm-hmm. and p- what Rife does is it provides six month paid internships for um, young people who are under 24 mm-hmm. who want to create digital content in Bristol and we run this magazine and they they apply and we pick three of them and they come and work for us mm-hmm. and I mentor them and teach them how to right. write and help them how to do uh, help them in how to like create BuzzFeed or Vice style yeah. content and do social media and the you know part of it is to give them access to the creative industries especially outside of London but mm-hmm. also part of it is to build their confidence so they can yeah. tell their own stories and their own voices and Varito uh, came to us and did that internship and she was one of those people who, as soon as I read the first piece that she submitted, I thought, fuck, mm. you're special. Yeah, yeah. She she was one, she's one of those rare people who's nailed her voice really early. Yeah. Um, and um, she'd written a couple of pieces for Media Diversified, and she'd also written... She's written the most popular piece on Rife at the moment, mm-hmm. which is about why we can't use the word coloured. Um, and it's just a brilliant piece. Yeah. And... Um, and I think what we kind of did with her was like give her a practical version of what she could be because yeah. I think so much of what she wanted to do was wrapped up in like um, spending a lot of time at a computer but just not externalising it in any way or talking yeah. to other people and um, she yeah she's a really strong brilliant voice and I, yeah. um, she's gone on to be the arts and culture editor for Galdem magazine which mm-hmm. is um, a great magazine set up by women of colour and um, you know that that to me feels like what I wanted the book to be I wanted it to be a series of opportunities or platforms for people Mm -hmm. who just need that next stage in their career um, or just needed to like to tell their story outside of the medium through which they are known I think the bit about her story that kind of blew my mind was having to look on the internet to find out what it was like to be black basically yeah and like and that 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 stopped me in my tracks when i thought she you know someone that has to discover their culture by doing a google search yeah and i thought was incredible and that idea that like you spend hours googling performative blackness only to find that you can't yeah you can't um 
you can't it's not a neat little thing yeah despite what society tells you yeah. it should be uh, it's a really brilliant piece and it's a really clever piece as yeah. well because I, what I love about it and what I love about so many of the pieces in the book is they use really small quiet moments to mm-hmm. to um, explode massive bombs yeah that's why I, exactly right what's your favourite uh, and I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have dropped this question on you except we're pressed for time <laughs> I can't choose my babies yes you can can I um I tell one of the pieces that really destroyed me uh, actually there are two pieces that really destroyed me and they're two pieces by the people I knew the least mm-hmm. so uh, Vera Chocks Yellow that one did me as well because it taught it made me feel really uncomfortable um and it really challenged me. It, and what I loved about it was that it was so challenging because um, it it uses humour to tell some really uncomfortable truths. Yeah. And one of the last thing I wanted to do was feel comfortable editing it. I know I commissioned all the pieces mm-hmm. and I edited all the pieces, but I don't I don't write to make people feel comfortable. I don't necessarily write to entertain people. Yeah. I, you know, I want people to feel uncomfortable, and that's something that I've learned through reading works by people like Tana Hasi Coates and yeah. Claudia Rankin um, and Vera's piece just really does that mm-hmm. in a brilliant way and also the other person who was really surprising was Coco Khan because Flags is brilliant. hilarious and it's also really dark mm-hmm. um, and again she was the person I knew the least but um, the piece when it came through like it really blew me away because it's so pointed and particular and it also it's one of the few that puts her own kind of prejudices on someone else yeah which which is what struck me about that one the most that you know she just assumed because of these British flags in his room that he was a Nazi yeah 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 and like I think most people would assume that like not a Nazi but a skinhead yeah, yeah, it's it's a great piece. It is um, excellent, and Riz's piece is great as well. But then I think Riz's piece. Um, sorry, was that the menu? Yeah, yeah. that's okay. <laughs> I can edit this. Yeah, stay. Yeah, can I? Yeah, just as a as an ex vegetarian, can I have it quite well done, please? <laughs> you should keep that no don't keep it maybe keep it oh, I might no. do <laughs> as an expert to tell me. yeah the other thing I wanted to say I know I'm sorry this, that's kind of stopped us even flow one of the things that struck me about Vera Chalks and this is something that I kind of noticed moving to Britain for the first time is just how almost normal or accepted it is to be openly racist against kind of East Asian people more so than South Asian for me. Yeah. And I think, the, the, I'll, I'll give you an example. Like the, the phrase Chinese whispers, for instance. How that is just part of the lexicon. And I had someone explain to me, because I didn't know what it was. And I had someone explain to me what that meant. And uh, they told me about the, the, the children's game that that was. And I was like, oh, right, so what exactly is that saying about Chinese people? But I think Virchok's and Daniel York's both kind of... Um, not certified, but kind of galvan- uh, galvanized what I already thought. Yeah. Um, it, it. Yeah, they, they, both pieces that really blew my mind because yeah. they they really discuss something that is so unsaid. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the, one of the things that doesn't really get discussed in the book. I mean, it gets discussed a little bit, but um, it's a lot more inferred than it could have been. Is is class, mm-hmm. and so you know, we we kind of hint at the the cl- the intersection of class yeah. in, in the whole racing, but. Um, the what those those pieces do really overtly is just go you know there there are conversations happening around what it means to be black and what it means to be south asian but yeah. actually there's this, nothing yeah this this sort of this model minority thing is, yeah and so, model minority it's sort of it's yeah, just it's, disgusting that isn't it there's um so one of the guys who is interviewed in Wayming Cam's piece, Paul mm-hmm. Hugh, he and Daniel um, made a piece called the the Chinese Question, which I met Paul at like a BBC writing retreat for yeah. ethnic writers, <laughs> where we were we were all taken away and like given some tips on yeah. writing comedy, and he uh, he was telling me about he and Daniel had made this short um, on ch- for Channel Four that was set in a Chinese takeaway. Um, where they kind of really interrogated like how um, how socially acceptable it was to be racist to people from East Asian and mm-hmm. Southeast Asian communities that um, or as Vera Chok describes them yellow mm-hmm. that um, it became the most complained thing on Channel 4 that it has ever been it's called The Chinese Question and it yeah. is on YouTube uh, if you look up Paul Hugh H-Y-U um, who is Chinese Elvis yeah. Um, and Daniel York, you might you might be lucky and find it. But it's yeah. really amazing. It's worth watching. Yeah. Is that? Are we around time? How much time have we got? Is that it? One more what? question. One more question. Okay. <clears throat> My other favorite one is Vinay Patel's. Uh, Patel. That one's incredible. I think I don't think there's another one in the book that mixes humor with, um, you know. Uh, Self, uh, not self-discovery, but asking yourself questions and about how you play your place in society, but using humor in such a great way. He's got discussions with himself about religion and you know worrying about death and stuff. It was one that I think um, resonated with me the most because I have those exact same feelings and mm. uh, and the idea, and, you know, you know, searching for religion um, because you're scared of death. I think was quite amazing. Yeah, Vin- Vinay's piece was really hard for both of us because mm. we, we both we both lost our mums quite early um and i think it it unlocked a lot of things for him um and, you know he really went on a massive voyage like researching that story and like interviewing his his grandparents and a lot of it was written like in the early hours because mm-hmm. i'd like send him notes and then i'd get like a message back from him at like 3 a.m mm-hmm. like a new draft back from him and when I when I've read it in the editing process, it feels like someone under the covers just whispering into the dark. There's something yeah. so quiet does it ever? And, yeah, something so quiet and intimate about it. It's really beautiful. It and is really, really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I loved it. Um, I'd love to ask you more questions, but I can't. I know you're probably starving to death. Um, thank you very well, much for this. You. I really, really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thanks so much. Great. Thank I you. I really like the podcast. I listened to uh, Ben Myers as well. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, he, he's, he's a brilliant writer. He is. Very good. And a really lovely guy. Well. Yeah. That's great. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you, it. man.
Great guy, right? How someone that wiped, that hungry, and that worried about his ill child can be that warm and engaging is beyond me. I tell you, if I was on as little food and sleep as he was, um, no way would I have done that interview for fear of it just being a half hour of me spitting hate on the world, which is kind of like what this podcast is. Uh, I was going to say the guy's a pro, but that just kind of suggests that there's some sort of performance element to his interview. And I, I don't know about you, but I didn't get that from him at all. Uh, I think he's, he's a guy who, despite the huge success of his book, he still to me feels like a really genuine dude with uh, both feet on the ground. I hate that cliche. Why did I say that? But you know what I mean. I'm sorry there wasn't a huge amount in the interview on Nikesh himself. I only just realized in the edit that we didn't even talk about his essay. But again, I think that speaks volumes about Nikesh. The entire interview was basically him talking about the work of other people. And, you know, he even big, big up the podcast interview that I did with Ben Myers. Next time, if I can get him on again, I will make him talk about himself a bit more, if possible. Whether he comes back on again or not, who knows. Um, his essay, Namaste, is obviously great. And I suppose now would be a good time to talk about it. But just go buy the book. Uh, I know you're probably thinking of a collection of essays. Yeesh, how boring is that? But Because that's what I always think about essay collections. But this one's amazing. And I think it's an important collection of essays as well. Someone on my Twitter stream said that it should be included in the curriculum for kids in this country. And I think that, you know, considering how crappy this country is at the minute, that is would be a, a great idea when you just hear all the shit coming out of people's mouths these days. And not just this country, my country as well, and the United States especially. It's just the Western world at the moment just seems really awful. Stop talking about politics. That's it. I also went on Twitter just now just to have a look in between recording the intro and the outro and realized it's actually Diwali today. <laughs> Here I'm going on about it being Halloween Eve and uh, it's not even Halloween. Tomorrow's Halloween and it's Diwali. So I, you know what? Maybe I am a racist. I don't know. I still need, there's still work to do basically squashing the inner hick inside me. That's about it. I'm talking to Kit DeWall next week about her book, My Name is Leon. If you've not read that, it's incredible. I read that in three days. It's the fastest I think I've ever read a book. I, I am a very slow reader, and I blazed through that one. We've arranged a time to meet the day after her keynote speech at Comma Press's Creative Writing Graduate Fair next week. November interviews are with book blogger Simon Savage and novelist Garth Greenwell. And they're both very good. Garth's in particular. Wow. Um, I can't wait for you to listen to it. But uh, for now, thanks for listening, and I will talk to you later. Bye.